Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, hear now the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and his, the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us, and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. So Samuel's sons do not follow in their father's steps. We've seen this pattern in the, the next generation before in 1 Samuel. Eli's sons had become like the Canaanite priests, treating the women who served at the tent like prostitutes. Now Samuel's sons become like Canaanite judges, taking bribes and perverting justice. Many generations later, the prophet Jeremiah will say, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. What does he mean by the ancient paths? In one sense, you could simply say, Well, the law, what God had said, the way that God had said to walk. Well, in Jeremiah 6 through 8, Jeremiah is reflecting on 1 Samuel. How do I know? Well, listen to what Jeremiah says. 
Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The, the same magical thinking that we saw in 1 Samuel 4, where they thought the ark will save us. And yes, Jeremiah is referring to 1 Samuel 4, as he makes clear in Jeremiah 7, 11, and 12. Has this house, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And you're like, wait a second, temple, den of robbers, doesn't Jesus do? Yes, exactly. Jesus is talking about the temple in his day. So there's going to be a threefold connection here. We need to see it. Let me finish, the, let me finish this. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place at Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Shiloh, and the destruction of Shiloh in 1 Samuel 4, connecting with the temple, the destruction of the temple in the days of Jeremiah, which Jesus connects to the den of robbers, is the temple, the second temple in Jesus' day. This whole pattern is an arc of, of Israel's continued rebellion, of Israel's continued turning away from the Lord. And this, this, the, theme, the theme that we're going to see tonight is God sort of narrowing from in Adam, God had called all humanity to walk in his ways. Adam was the only man, so it's all, all, all of humanity. And in Adam, we fell. And then God chose Israel. Would Israel succeed where Adam failed? Well, this is, this is the story of the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. Israel has failed to be the second Adam. Israel has failed to walk before God and live as his beloved son. And so then God chooses David. Will David succeed where Israel failed? Well, you know the story. That's the story of the destruction of the temple. The this, that's Jeremiah's story as he's saying, look at Shiloh when Israel failed. Well, guess what? The house of David has now failed. And then, what's going to happen? What's the future? Can, well, it's, it's only when our Lord Jesus comes that he is the one who takes all that Adam was supposed to be, all that Israel was supposed to be, all that David was supposed to be. He is the one who takes and fulfills all that God had promised. So when Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 7, says, go now to my place at Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And then the Lord says in two verses later, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight. God says to Judah and to the house of David, time's up. You've, you've done the same thing again. The ancient paths are the ways, the word, the Torah of the Lord. And when we neglect to draw near to God himself, we forsake the ancient paths. As Jeremiah says in eight, chapter 8, verse 8, How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us when the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Jeremiah is describing what is about to happen in the coming exile of Jerusalem, but he uses the exile of the ark back in 1 Samuel 4 as the pattern and paradigm. 
And the refrain in Jeremiah 6 and 8 is the same. From the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. The same problem as in 1 Samuel, in the days of Eli, in the days of Samuel. Your sons do not walk in your ways. And the elders gather together and they come to Samuel and they say, Okay, your sons aren't walking in your ways, so he, we know that we, we got a solution. We, we can fix this. How often do we do this? <laughs> it's actually the same problem they had back in chapter 4. We had thought, just for a moment, back in chapter 7 last time, we had thought, oh, they learned their lesson. They returned to the Lord with all their heart. Well, apparently not. Notice Samuel's response. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now notice, notice what Samuel does. Samuel is the one person in our story who gets it. Samuel doesn't say, that's a terrible idea, there's no way we're doing this. What does Samuel do? He goes to God. He prayed to the Lord. Samuel understands that he is not able to fix the problem that is Israel. And so he goes to the one who can. And the Lord then says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, listen to how God says this. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, many people have read 1 Samuel 8 as being hostile to the idea of a king for Israel. Some people think of the book of 1 Samuel as sort of, as sort of has this sort of anti-monarchical sentiment here. And, and you can see why. I, mean, I, I don't blame people for... Uh, that's, it's, it's an easy first blush reading. I mean, after all, Samuel is displeased with the request. God himself says that their request is a rejection of him as king. And then God warns them that their king will oppress them. So it, it's, it's easy to come to the conclusion that 1 Samuel 8 is against the idea of monarchy. According to this account... Israel should have continued under the judges, trusting in God as their king to rule over them. But if you think about it for a moment, it's like, really? Is that what 1 Samuel is saying they should have done? But the problem is, actually, just if you look back over at Deuteronomy chapter 17, in Deuteronomy 17, we're told about the idea of king. So listen to how God says this in Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, 
only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Notice that God had said, when you come to the land, if you want a king, you can have a king. So, okay, Deuteronomy 17 says Israel could have a king. So how do you account for the hostility of 1 Samuel 8 to the kingship? Well, there's also a second problem. The book of Samuel is about kingship from first to last. Hannah prays for the king in chapter 2, verse 10. The whole problem with the judges is portrayed as a lack of continuity. Eli and Samuel have rebellious sons. You can perhaps see why I was, I'm at least a little bit sympathetic to Eli. I mean, you can, and here with Samuel, you see the same problem. Samuel is, is portrayed as a good and faithful prophet and priest and judge. He's one of the great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. But his sons don't walk in his ways. Actually, when you look at all that we see in Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, whose sons do walk in his ways? I mean, there may well have been poor families where faithfulness endured. I suspect there, were, there, there was. But the point in 1 Samuel, as with Judges before it, is that Israel's judges cannot provide continuity of faithful leadership. 1 Samuel sets up the kingship by exposing the inadequacy of the judges, but then has this stinging rebuke of Israel for wanting a king. Some have handled the dilemma by saying, ah, the problem was not that Israel asked for a king, it was that they asked for a king like all the other nations. Only one problem. Did you hear what I read from Deuteronomy 17? That very phrase, like all the other nations, it's a verbatim quote. They are quoting Deuteronomy when they ask for a king. They're doing it in exactly the way that God had told them to do it. So if you say that Israel, the problem with the request for a king is that they were doing it because they wanted to be like the other nations, the problem is, then you're saying that Deuteronomy is, is where the problem is. But no, God didn't tell them. What do we do with this? If you're going to appeal to Deuteronomy 17 as to the reason why it's okay to have a king, then you have to recognize that Israel may ask for a king like all the nations that are around them. So some have tried to say that Israel should have waited for God to provide them with a king. If they had just waited, God would have given them David. Again, that's not what Deuteronomy 17 says. Deuteronomy 17 says, you can ask for a king. It's, it's in the people's initiative to make the request. They just need to submit to God's choice as to who the king will be. Which, by the way, is what they do in 1 Samuel. So we're left with saying that 
there's no problem with Israel asking for a king. And there's no problem with Israel asking for a king like the other nations. So what's the problem here in 1 Samuel 8? 1 Samuel 8 reads like a textbook case of Israel obeying the law. They ask for a king in precisely the way that God told them to do it, and yet they are rebuked by both Samuel and God. So how do we, what do we do with this? Well, 1 Samuel 8 is not anti-monarchy. 1 Samuel 8 is anti-Israel. Deuteronomy 17 is not exactly gung-ho about the kingship. It presents the kingship as a dangerous institution that is fraught with peril. The only time you adopt the kingship is at the uttermost end of need. When Israel has reached the nadir of its existence, then and only then do you turn to the last resort, kingship. Well, what's happened here in 1 Samuel 4 through 7? Listen to what God warned, the warning of God in verse 7. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, you might think their request for a king is the rejection of him. That's not what verse 8 says. Verse 8 says, According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. God's point is that this request for a king is just symptomatic of a deeper problem that has characterized Israel from the day they left Egypt. Think of all the rebellion in the wilderness. And then there was that one glorious generation in Joshua's day that actually heard the word of the Lord, believed it, and did what God said for a whole generation. <sighs> oh, then the judges. <sighs> They're doing to you, Samuel, what they did to Moses. And remember that God told Moses that the people aren't rejecting Moses, they're rejecting him when they rebelled. And what they did to the judges. The request for a king was simply the, the logical outcome of the failure of Israel. Israel had been called, yet God had said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me, that he may worship me. And Israel, as the son of God, is called to be all that Adam had failed to be, to do all that Adam had failed to do, to go into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, to believe God, to trust him, to worship him. And if they did this, then the nations around them would, would marvel at their, at their wise and just laws and would marvel at the faithfulness of their God in providing for them. A holy nation, a kingdom of priests would have been a place where the, the surrounding nations would have repented of their sinful ways and joined with the people of God. And a holy nation would have endured the mockery and scorn of the unrighteous. Israel would have suffered at the hands of the nations, but they would have suffered for righteousness' sake. In other words, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation would have looked an awful lot like Jesus because that's what the firstborn son of God is supposed to look like. And so when Israel asks for a king, they are confessing that they have failed to be the son of God. Israel is supposed to be holy. Israel is supposed to be a people set apart to the Lord. And Deuteronomy 17 had recognized that the only way Israel would need a king 
would be if Israel failed. And of course, Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy makes it clear that Israel will fail. So 1 Samuel 8 is simply saying what Moses had said would happen. Israel has failed. Now, this is why we spent so much time on Ebenezer and Ichabod in chapters 4 through 7. God has forsaken Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. Why? I mean, the Ark of the Covenant doesn't get captured if Israel is faithful to the Lord. It's because Israel has degenerated into being barely more than another Canaanite nation that the Ark of the Covenant is captured. Eli's sons, the priests, are acting like pagan priests, and now Samuel's sons are acting like pagan judges. The glory has departed from Israel. Prophet and priest alike all practice deceit. And now, after the momentary repentance of chapter 7, Israel is making the same mistake they did in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Israel thought that the ark was a magic box. If they just brought the ark of the covenant to battle, God would give them victory. In chapter 7, we thought, maybe, hopefully, Israel has learned. Israel recognized they had to turn away from their sin and turn to God himself. Samuel had said, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. But Israel's heart is fickle. Sometimes they serve him only and sometimes they don't. So be careful what you ask for. There's a warning for future generations in these verses, a warning for us. Beware of a fickle heart. Beware of a double-minded heart that is torn in different directions. And be careful what you ask for, because God might actually give it to you. What is it that you want? Do you think you know what God should do to make things better for you? Be careful. Are you sure that you know what is best for you? Israel thinks they know. If we had a king. Verses 10 to 18 are favorites of modern-day libertarians. They like to point out that Samuel portrays a 10% income tax as a problem. Yeah, there's all, all of this about conscription of labor and sort of big government. Now, what libertarians often neglect here is the context. Israel already has a king, Yahweh. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Yahweh himself was to rule in Israel. No other nation had such a promise. And also, it's important to note that Samuel does not say this is a, a description of a bad king. It is simply the description of the king who will reign over you. So it's not just Saul or Rehoboam or Manasseh, the bad kings. This would be true for David, Solomon, Josiah as well. If you want a king, then recognize this is what a king does. In order for your king to go before you into battle, he needs to have an army. So he will take your sons and conscript them into his army, verse 11. And then verse 12, in order to provide for his army, he needs to have food and equipment. So he will conscript your sons into his service for forced labor, whether farming or manufacturing. Oh, and it won't just be your sons. 
It'll also be your daughters, verse 13, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Notice, this is just, this is just you might say, the good parts. Let's not forget that Solomon, a good king by all accounts, had 300 concubines who are, wives are of more or less equal rank, concubines are of lower rank. Where would he get concubines? From your daughters, because you're not equal rank to a king. His wives will be coming from equal rank, other kings and princes from around the area. His concubines will come from your daughters, ordinary Israelite daughters who will never get married, but are in a form of sexual servitude to the king. And this is a, and this is a good thing. He will take your male and female servants for his labor force, verse 16. Indeed, you shall be his slaves, Samuel says, verse 17. Changing your form of government will not save you. It may solve one problem. You won't have to wonder who your next ruler will be. But it doesn't guarantee that it will be a good ruler. And sure, as long as you have a generally good king, you can put up with his flaws, because at least the trains run on time. But a bad king, will be intolerable. Verse 18, And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Remember, you chose this path. You asked for this. You got what you wanted. So what is it that you really want? Now, idolatry follows a predictable pattern. And God portrays this request for a king as being a part of Israel's idolatrous pattern. Notice, it's not that a request for a king is wrong. Deuteronomy 17 had said they could do this. The problem is not the idea of a king. The problem is Israel and Israel's idolatry. Idolatry tends to think of our problems in mechanical terms rather than spiritual terms. We think of our problems in terms of horizontal relationships, not our vertical relationship with God. We, where we always get in trouble is thinking that the solution is just if we can figure out the mechanical fix, if we can figure out what technique, what strategy can we use to make this, to solve this problem. And instead of thinking vertically, instead of looking to God for help, we are more interested in prescribing what form God's help must take. How often do we do this? We know the solution, and we, so we just pray that God will make our solution happen. Not surprisingly, God does not find our scintillating brilliance all that impressive. As one wise pastor put it, our proposals and solutions then can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. To the point that verses 19 to 22 turn obedience upside down. You would think that, ah, sort of, we should obey God's voice, right? You'd think. We were told in 1 Samuel 3, verse 19, that the Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground. You might think that the people would be very willing to obey the voice of a prophet like that. But now we hear the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and so God tells Samuel to obey the voice of the people. 
Sometimes people want things that are bad for them. And sometimes God gives us what we ask for. To illustrate, after divorcing my father, my mother wanted a husband in the worst way. And so she finally got one in the worst way. She had prayed that if God wanted her to remarry, that God would have a man approach her in a very specific way using verbatim sort of this line. And she knew that the Bible forbade her to marry someone other than my dad because of how the divorce happened. But she also knew that lots of Christians disagree with that interpretation. And so she hoped God would disagree with that interpretation too. So she figured if she asked God for such a particular sign, that would mean that God approved of her desire to marry someone else. Within a week of marrying this guy, she realized that she had made a terrible mistake. But she was perplexed because what did that mean about God giving her such a clear sign? Why did God let him use that very line if it wasn't his will that she marry him? Well, if God gives you the sign you ask for, does that mean that he wants you to do it? Now, I was in college at the time, and I had resolved not to say anything because she was already married. She had deliberately avoided telling me anything about this in advance because she had a hunch I wouldn't agree. But now they came for a visit on their honeymoon, and what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? I was like, I'm not going to say a word. There's nothing, nothing to be said. But she really wanted to know what I thought. And I tried saying, Mom, you're already married. There's no point in saying anything. But she insisted, no, I really want to know what, how, would you, how do you respond to this? So I said, Mom, Israel once asked God for a king. Sometimes we ask God for something that is not good for us. Now, God is a good father. When we ask for a fish, he will not give us a viper. What if you ask for a viper? Well, God is a good father, and he will say, no, I'm not going to give you a viper. Oh, but please, Dad, please, I really, really, really want a viper. Can you give me a viper, give me a viper, give me a viper. Maybe, eventually, if we insist and utterly refuse to believe him when he tells us it's not good for us, maybe as a last resort, he will give us what we ask for in order to show us the foolishness of our own ways, in order to show us how much we need him. If you will not follow Jesus, if you refuse to do what he says, then maybe, just maybe, God will give you what you really, really want. Why? Because he loves you. He wants you for himself, and he will not be satisfied with anything less. And so if the only way you can learn how much you need him is for him to give you a viper, then he will give you what you ask for. Now, the only reason why I'm willing to tell this story in such detail is because I can conclude the story by saying, my mother needed God to do this. And because God loved her enough to do this, she came to a renewed love for him and devotion to him. 
She died 12 years later at the age of 63. And in the last few years of her life, she had begun to learn the secret of contentment to be so satisfied with God that she was content with whatever he chose to give her or not give her because she had him. Do you need God to do that to you? (laughs) I hope not. But what is it that matters to you? Israel was not content with God. It's why I'm just not okay with saying that, ah, if Israel had been faithful, then God would have given them David anyway. (laughs) If Israel had been faithful, there would have been no need for David. The whole point that Moses had made in Deuteronomy was that Israel was not going to be faithful. Or to use Paul's image from Galatians 3 and 4, Israel was the son of God in his minority. But Israel was a rebellious son. And the only hope for Adam's rebellious race was focused on Israel, the son of God. But in Israel's rebellion, the book of Samuel tells us how Israel failed. And so in Israel's failure, really at Shiloh, as the ark was taken captive, as Shiloh was destroyed, as now the presence of God is is disrupted. We we really need to see this chapter in Israel's history as bringing to a conclusion the story of Israel, the son of God. Israel has failed. Exile has come. The story is over. And now, God will choose a king who is called to succeed where Israel has failed. From now on, and when you look, even in the way God sets up the call of Saul, if Saul succeeds where Israel failed, Saul will have a line that will follow him. But Saul fails. He's just like Israel. And then God will call David and place a man after his own heart on the throne. And, And now David will be called to succeed where Israel failed. Of course, we know the end of that story because the only hope for the sons of David was that God would do one more pruning. We pruned it down from Adam's whole race to Abraham and his seed. And now Israel has failed. And so Israel is pruned down to the tribe of Judah, to the house of David. And when he fails, that kingship is pruned down to one man our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the true Israel, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the second Adam, who recapitulates the whole history of the people of God in himself and thus brings us to God. And because Jesus is king, because he sits at the right hand of the Father, he goes before us to defeat all of his and our enemies. He is the king who takes our sons and our daughters, and just the way King Jesus does this is not in any way oppressive in the least. He does this as our king who takes us and our household and all that we have and all that we are and joins us to himself that we might be his, that we might be his bride, his beloved, his own, that we might walk before him 
And because Jesus is king, you can have confidence that King Jesus will continue the work that he has begun in you in order to bring you into conformance with himself, which means that, yes, we will endure trial and tribulation. We will endure suffering in this life. But these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So let us ask him to continue what he has begun. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the king. We thank you for the one who has triumphed and subdued even us to himself, that we might be yours. Lord, have mercy. Help us as your people to hear your voice and to walk before you as your people, to hear what you are saying, that your, your word might take root in our hearts, might bear fruit in our lives, that we might show forth your glory to the nations, that those around us, that those in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in every place where we go, that may they see in us the fruit of your, of your spirit as we walk as your people, that we might show forth your grace and your mercy, your love, as we live before the watching world, that they might see in us and hear from us the good news of Jesus, that we might live as those who have been joined to the life of your Son. Lord, have mercy upon us, and have mercy upon your church throughout all the nations, that in, in every land and in every place, that the glory of Jesus might be made known. Have mercy, Lord, upon all those who are struggling, those who are afflicted, those who are bowed down under weights of care. And Lord, grant each of us hearts that, that love you, that hear your voice and believe your promises. Lord, turn our hearts back to you, that we might be devoted to you only, that we might bring everything to you, trusting that that your word will accomplish your purposes, that your spirit will, will work in every situation we're in, that we can come to you daily in every moment, knowing that you will hear us and you will bring the kingdom of your beloved son because we pray in his name. Amen. <laughs>